we are looking at Holy Week. We, you know, I, was, I realize it's like we have one message left to finish 1 John. And it's like, oh, Bob, you're putting it off. And I am. I'm putting it off. We're going to talk about Holy Week this week because, yeah, I don't know why I just should just do it and not have to say anything about it. This week is what, what we would commonly call Holy Week, all the events that are leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And, and I want to talk about that just a little bit because it's good for us to know and understand. And I think we want to, I want to look at some historical stuff so that we kind of understand the setting and the way things are going on at that time. Uh, but before I do that, I want to uh, do something. We do this every, so it's been a long time though. And so I thought maybe, you know, when I was younger, I loved top 10 lists, and so I thought I'd give you the top 10 reasons to be late to first church. Number 10, all the cool people stand in the foyer during the music. Oh, they got groans? I'm so sorry. Number nine, don't want to shake hands with 400 people. It's a good reason to be late, all right? Number eight, Charles Stanley ran long on the radio. That's dated, <laughs> right? Number seven, clothing crisis. My Sunday best was still at the cleaners. Whatever. Number six, this is what my daughters hang on. Big sale at Dillard's this morning, so I'm late. Number five, reason to be late. There's a long line at Dunkin' Donuts this morning. We have coffee. You don't need to do that, all right? Number four, big fight at home. I needed time to put on my happy face. Ooh, that rings true with some people right now. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as I said that, there were some couples that went, <laughs> you know, I see that. You know how when you were in school, somehow the teacher had this ability to spot you when you were writing a note. It's simply because they were tall and they could look down and see. I'm on a stage. I see every poke I see you guys. It's terrible what you do sometimes. I did it when I was there. <laughs> I did it too. But I see you sometimes. I say, sometimes we need to really work on this. And all I see is, mm, like that. And then there's a side look or the eyes just go over and the lips get a little bit, mm. All right. Big fight at home. Need to put on my happy face. All right. Top 10 reasons to be late to first church. Number three, give me a break. The pastor wears jeans for crying out loud. What are you whining about lateness for? All right. Top 10 reasons to be late to first church. Number two, you can hear the band in the parking lot anyways. <laughs> Top 10 reasons to be late to first church. Number one, brrr, heighten the dr drama here. Late. What? <laughs> they have a start time? <laughs> I know for a lot of you, that's what's true. Because what I, I, I talked to somebody a while ago, and they were saying, oh, you're first church. I said, yeah, I know somebody. They said, I know somebody who goes to first church. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And he said, they told me what time you start. I said, oh, what time did they tell you? Oh, sometime around 1030. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. It's a culture we've had trouble breaking. It's been this way for years, and it just slips out of hand. All right, we're talking about Holy Week. I want to talk about Holy Week, the call to live a different life. And, and, and I want us to think about this. I, you know, I, had a, I, had a, I used to work with teenagers for quite a few years. And one time I had this young guy, he comes up to me, he's like a sophomore in high school, right? And he goes, Bob, you played hockey, right? And I said, yeah, man, I love hockey. I, I, I played hockey for quite a few years. And he goes, man, will you teach me how to skate? 
sure, I would be happy to teach you how to skate. Oh, cool. I said, why the sudden interest in skating? I think I want to play hockey in college and maybe even the pros. Now, you know, one of the things that you talk about is with, with people, yeah, especially, especially teenagers, you know, you don't want to, they have these dreams, and you don't want to just dash their dreams. You know, some kid says, you know, I want to be a movie star, or I want to do this, and I want to do that, and you just, you want to say, you don't have a snowball's chance. You know, you don't, you don't have a chance on this one. But you learn not to say that, because why crush their dreams? You know, let them work through it. And, but this guy, I was like, you don't know how to skate yet? I said, you're, I'm thinking, you're like 10 years late on this deal. You need to be skating when you're three to, to make it that far. And I said, well, have you bought any of the equipment? Equipment? I said, yeah. Have you watched hockey? I mean, have you watched it? They wear helmets and they wear pads. It's like, it's like football, except they actually wear more stuff than football players. So it's incredibly expensive. Oh, and I said, yeah, I mean, you got to, all of this, a lot involved. You, you're going to have to join a team really quick. Get on a team and start working and practice like crazy. Are there teams around here? I'm like, you've really thought this dream through, I can tell. And I finally said, let, let me just clue you in. I think hockey's a great sport, and I think you could have a lot of fun with it. But, dude, you are not playing in college, and you are not turning pro. It's just not happening. You just gotta, you just gotta own up to that one, and and what what's going on? Because what I was thinking was, you you haven't, you're not ready to make the sacrifice that it would require. I mean, at your age, starting this late, you'd have to skate ten hours a day. You'd have to be on multiple teams. You'd have to be, invest so much time. Are you ready to make that sacrifice? And the fact that he didn't even know about the equipment that he needed told me he hadn't thought through the sacrifice. Now we often th- make plans about things we want to do. And oftentimes we ask God to help us with it. And I think sometimes God is saying to us, do you understand what you're asking for? I don't think you've thought this through. This guy couldn't understand. His dream was totally unrealistic. He was not living in reality. There was a total disconnect from what the real world is like concerning hockey. And this applies to the last week of Jesus' life. The week leading up to Easter, the, di- the disciples were totally disconnected from reality in a number of ways. They were clinging to a dream that Jesus was, he kept telling them, this is not going to happen. It's not happening that way. But they had been taught all their life how the Messiah was going to be, and they couldn't let that go. And they saw his power when he did certain things. They saw that power. And they just tended to overlook the things that didn't quite jive with what they thought it should be, how they thought he should be. So they only saw, and man, I can do this. They only saw what they wanted to see. They only saw what they wanted to see. One of the biggest things that I can struggle with as a person who teaches the word is I can go into the word with a preconceived idea of what I want to find there. And if I do that, I will find it. I can figure out a way of finding it. But what I have to do as I study is I have to say, put away any preconceived notions, put away the theology I've learned, put away all that stuff, and just first time, let the verses speak for themselves. Come at it fresh. Be honest with the word, even if it's uncomfortable, even if I don't like what it says. And there's plenty of things I don't like what it says. All right, and so this is what they were struggling with because it's hard to change something you've been taught all your life. 
it's hard to give up something that you've hoped in all your life. In the 1960s, there was a guy named Chuck Smith. He was a pastor of a small church in California. And, and these, um, these, these hippies started coming to his church. And the, it was a fairly conservative church. And the people were freaking out. Because here comes all these people. They don't dress right. They don't look right. They don't smell right. They don't, they're just not right in so many ways. I don't like their language. I don't like so much about them. And so they would tell him, you need to get them to stop coming. And he said, are you guys kidding me? Are you kidding me? What you're, are you listening to what you're saying? And they're like, no, they'll be a bad influence on our kids. You know, they'll be this, they'll be that. And finally, he ended up having to leave the church. He left that church because they were so unresponsive to what God was doing in, in, in those people's lives and in their hearts. And he started a church. It's called Calvary Chapel. You may have heard of it. There's thousands of them all over the world. Because he suddenly realized God is doing something that is outside of our comfort zone. God is doing something that we weren't expecting. And I'm willing to do what God is doing. I want to jump on that train. I want to catch that wave. But the people of his church were like, no, that's not what we want. And he had to leave. And he started this church that God has blessed incredibly. And so Jesus is going to, because they're not getting it, because their preconceived notions are kind of ruling in their thought process here, Jesus gets real plain at times. Look at Mark 10 here. It's on, on, on your sheet. It's on the, on the screen there. He, it's like this is the cliff notes for dummies for Jesus as the end of his life. We are going to Jerusalem. He, I can almost imagine Jesus talking to, you know, fellas, we are going to Jerusalem, slowing it down so they get it. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. All right? So he makes it as plain as he can. And here's the thing. We know they don't get it. We don't know they, because if you think about it, what if somebody you knew that you really cared about told you something devastating that was going to happen in their life? How would you react? I mean, did any of the disciples pause for a moment, maybe grow somber, maybe put their arm around Jesus and say, dude, I'm here for you. I'm so sorry. This sounds awful. I don't understand it, but I want to hear. Tell me more. What? This is terrible. But they did not have one of them. There's not a listener in the bunch. They're just in la-la land. They're just doing their own thing. And it's easy to criticize them, but deep down inside, I know why Jesus has those disciples, because they're just like me. They're just like me. I think that I get it sometimes. I think I know what God is doing. And then I realize at times my own expectations get in the way and I haven't surrendered to God's plan and purpose because I don't always like God's plan and purpose or I don't understand God's plan and purpose so I don't feel like surrendering to it. I, forget, I keep forgetting that God's way of doing things clashes with the ways that I would think are most efficient or I would think are the best practices. God often goes different ways and it can happen to all of us. I mean, a simple thing. Maybe sometime you hear something in church or you hear something in a Bible study or discipleship group or a meeting or something, and it's powerful, and you go, wow, that is really important. And then you walk away, and within a few days, you've totally forgotten about it. It has totally gone out of your mind. 
Can you imagine that God is saying to you, weren't you listening? My spirit impressed upon you how important this was, and you just blow it off? That's why the Bible so many times says, he who has ears, let him hear. Because that's a common phrase for saying, make sure you listen to this. This is important. And so, what do the disciples do after Jesus reveals? I mean, this is the next verse. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, this happened to me one time in my life. One of my kids came to me and said, Daddy, I want to ask you something, and I want to promise, I want you to promise that you'll say yes. And I'm like, <laughs> I thought you were a smart kid. I'm so disappointed. Uh, you know, I just like, what do you think? What do you think I'm going to say? I said, no, no, I'm not opening the door that wide. And this is what they're doing, just like little kids. Jesus, we want you to do just what we ask, right? He says, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't tell them, promise. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Verse 38, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? He says, you have no clue what you're asking. I just told you what's going to happen. And all you're talking about is this kingdom that you think I'm going to bring in like some kind of a physical kingdom, like I'm going to be king, so I need a prime minister, and I need a secretary of the treasury, and I need this, and I need this. And so you're voting for the two, stop, two top spots. You're saying, let us in, let us in. And we know actually their mom was involved in this too because another one of the gospels mentions her involvement. He says, you don't know. They want power. They think that God's kingdom is like every other kingdom they've ever seen. They're probably thinking, we're not exactly sure what he's talking about, but the climax seems to be coming. He talks cryptically all the time, and so this is probably some sort of prophetic talk he's doing, so we better fandango our seats so that we get the best seats in the house, right? Because if you're going to go see Avengers Endgame, you've already lost the best seats in the house. They've all been fandangoed, right? Because I checked for the first few days. They're gone. And that's what they're doing. They're working ahead. They're thinking, we got to get those best seats, get our, get, our, get our resume in for Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus says, you don't, you don't understand. You got it all backwards. And of course they have it all backwards, just like I get it all backwards sometimes. Just like all of us get it all backwards. We start thinking certain things are so important and we get impressed by certain things that we think are really, and God's going, that doesn't matter to me. Why are you so enamored with that? And we get it backwards. They want to be at the top of the organizational chart. And Jesus says, you don't even have a clue. My chart's upside down. The first will be last, and the last will be first. He tells them, listen, you're thinking of this the way the world works, the way the world ranks people and gives status. You're thinking of it that way. You're thinking of what the world thinks is important. He says, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to, come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so there's this great imagery Jesus is using here. He talks about whoever wants to be great, be a servant. 
whoever wants to be first, become a slave, the lowest person in their society. Slaves weren't even considered worthy of it. I mean, just it's such a low thing. And he says, I want, that's where I want you to go. That's what I want you to be. And I got to be honest, you know, sometimes I pray like that. Like James and John, sometimes I pray with myself at the center the whole time. And sometimes I have these false expectations. I've been a decent Christian, and so God kind of owes me one in this prayer department. Like I, I deserve at least a pretty good answer on this one because I've worked so hard. I have these false expectations. And we see false expectations from people. If you want to define Holy Week, the week before Jesus' death, it is a week of false expectations. And you'll find it in all the Gospels as they, as they get it wrong, writing up to the very end. But let me show you one more example uh, of that, what that means. Because uh, right after James and John's attempt to get their seats set ahead of time for being the two most powerful people on earth below Jesus... Jesus rides into Jerusalem, what is often called the triumphal entry. Now, we've talked about this before, but a lot of new. I, I want to just hit this one more time. This is important. We need to know a little history here. So, it's almost Passover. When Passover comes, the size of Jerusalem is increased sometimes tenfold. There's so many people there from out of town. All these people who have come for the Passover come to the temple. So the place is packed. And this crowd that gathers when Jesus is uh, the triumphal entry, uh, entry of Jesus, this crowd that gathers and they shout out Hosanna, most of them are not residents of Jerusalem. They've come for the feast. They've, they've heard about Jesus. They've heard about his miracles. They've heard, I mean, you think about this. They've heard that he, because this didn't happen that long before, they've heard he raised a man from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, I want to tell you something. If you want to raise an army and you can raise people from the dead, you'll get a lot of people who will fight for you. Because this is the way they're thinking. They're thinking milita militarily, and I'll tell you why. Their expectations were very strong on this, and they were thinking of something that just only happened 200 years ago. 200 years ago, there was a, 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 a ruler... Um, the, uh, the Greeks had conquered that area, and, and he was incredible. He was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was called, he was called uh, Antiochus the Madman because he, he, he was crazy. And we know how that works, right? You get this, this guy who's king, he has a son, right? And his sister has a daughter, so they marry to keep it all in the family, and they keep it all in the family that way. And, and what happens is, all kinds of problems start arising. You know how that works when you inbreed, and, 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 and insanity is one of them. And this guy was that way. And he was so hated by the Jews because he did things to them, almost like just because he had pleasure out of doing horrible things to them. What could I do this horrible for them? Uh, the Jews had a small uprising, and he got so mad. He sealed the temple with all these people inside. He brought in pigs, slaughtered them, and you could only leave alive if you drank pig blood. And, and thousands were killed. Thousands said, no, this is unclean. We will not do this. And he dragged a, a pig into the temple and spread its blood all over, all over the insides of the, of the temple area, the holiest places for Jews. So that moment, they hated him. I mean, it just we can't even understand how visceral that hate was. And a man named Judas Maccabeus, 
raised up a small army, started guerrilla warfare, lasted nine years, and finally he overthrew Antiochus, Epiphanius Antiochus, and ran and he left, and there was this huge celebration. And they celebrated the victory of that battle by waving palm branches, all right? That was 200 years ago. So now think about what a palm branch means to a Jew in Jerusalem with foreign rulers who are ruling your country, all right? I can remember when my kids were little. We went to this church, and they, they, they give them all these palm branches. And uh, I said, oh, you, you know, one of my kids, you go, oh, that's so cute. You know, and then they all kind of march into the church. It's like a little parade they have into the church. And then the little ones start hitting other ones with their palm branches, and they get mad, and then peace doesn't break out, right? And, and one of my kids was saying, well, my teacher told me palm branches symbolize peace and love. And I was like, Nope. <laughs> Sorry to break your bubble, kid. <laughs> that palm branch means let's go kill Romans. Because that's what it meant. That's what it meant. In fact, when Judas Maccabeus, I'm going a long time on this rabbit trail. Judas Maccabeus, when he, um, when he overthrew the Greeks and kicked them out and became the ruler of Israel, he minted coins. That's what people do when they become rulers. And that's what was on the coin. A palm branch with Hebrew around it that signified the victory that was won in overthrowing the Greeks and killing the Greeks that had kept them enslaved for so long. So, Jesus comes riding in, and people start wearing, waving palm branches. And they say, Hosanna, which literally means, save us doesn't have necessarily a spiritual meaning. We've infused it with a spiritual meaning, but that, back then it meant we're under the yoke of a, of a horrible ruler, this Caesar. Save us, Jesus. Save us. Your army awaits. We're ready. All right? Now, the, 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 uh, the Romans knew that Passover, that, and Passover is celebrating the time that God... Uh, brought the Israelites out of captivity to the Egyptians, another time where salvation came in a very physical form. So the Romans also took steps, and, and I want to show you, this is a picture, uh, this is a, a reconstruction kind of a thing, and, uh, of this is the temple. This is approximately what the temple looked like in Jesus' day. Now, the scale is huge. Um, the, the bottom left forefront there, that corner of the temple there, a cliff drops away. And, and I think when, when Satan tempted Jesus to jump off, that's, that's where he took him because it drops 450 feet down to the ground. Uh, the, uh, the, um, the wall there is about 250 feet high. So this is a huge building. Now, if you look at the top right of the temple, you see those four towers there? That's the Fortress Antonia. That is what the uh, Romans built for that reason, to be right next to the temple. And the front two towers especially were manned all the time, looking down into the temple, looking for trouble, looking for trouble. And it did happen. One time in Jesus' lifetime, somebody tried to start a revolt. The soldiers poured out of that fortress. They shut the entrances to the temple, and then they waded in and started killing people. 
This happened to the Jews so many times. And, and, and they, you know, one historian, Josephus tells us that because it was sealed, the blood was, was like almost a foot high of all these people who were killed. Now, he may have been exaggerating. I mean, I don't know how that kind of stuff works, but because that's a huge building. But the, the idea was they were there all the time at that fortress. And when it came to Passover, they reinforced the fortress. And coming from the west entrance would be a Roman cohort, and it would look something like this. The prefect, the guy in charge, would be on a chariot, or he would be riding a horse, and there would be a couple of thousand troops, armor gleaming, marching into Jerusalem, reinforcing, and they'd come the week before Passover. Usually they came on Sunday, the Sunday before which means Jesus' triumphal entry, which we know was from the east, and the Romans' entry, which we know would always come from the west because of the city they marched from, may have been happening simultaneously. What an interesting thing that would be. Simultaneously, the greatest army in the world is marching into Jerusalem, and simultaneously, the greatest savior in the world is marching in, and there's going to be a collision in one week. In five days, there's going to be a collision. And so they would march in, and they would reinforce that fortress, and they would double the size of the fortress to to be ready for any kind of problems that would be coming. And at the same time, as they're marching in, here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. I just think that's an incredible thought that they would arrive approximately at least on the same day. And so when people... When they would hear, they heard about Jesus, they heard about his miracles, they were saying, Hosanna, save us, or literally save us right now at the top of their lungs. And they're waving palm branches that celebrate another victory in an incredibly similar situation. And it symbolizes another, a deliverer that's coming, and he's going to rid us of this conquering army. So it's essentially they're saying, Jesus, be like Judas Maccabeus. Deliver us deliver us the way he did by overthrowing and instituting a government of Jews run by Jews so that it's our country again. We want that again. And we know their expectations and their focus was completely off base. This was not God's plan. They'd misinterpreted it or God's intention. They're calling on being saved and Jesus is planning on saving them, but in a much bigger way than they could even imagine, more profound and more powerful. The way of the sword does not work. Still doesn't work. You know, sometimes I want God to save me from the life I have. I mean, you know, what's what's your life like? I want total relief from troubles, from aging, from the IRS. Seems appropriate. From traffic from my chronic condition of overscheduling myself. I would love to have God save me from that because that's all about me. That's all about me and my problems. But God's heart beats for others and his way is the way of the servant. And he tells me, Bob, the world doesn't revolve around you. And Jesus illustrates this just so the disciples will know it in Holy Week. 
They come to that meal. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to the place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He, said to he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus washes their feet. He does the work of a slave. He does the work of the lowliest person and washes their feet. And he says, do you understand this? I mean, this is a picture I'm painting for you. I'm doing it in real life. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? This is how it works now. The first is last and the last is first. The slave will be the greatest and the ruler will be the least. I'm turning the whole thing upside down. Here's my message in a nutshell, he says. He illustrated it. He painted a picture. He lived it. Here is the word of God become flesh. And, and, and he says, I want you to reevaluate your goals, your standards, because I've got a new standard. What is it? You know, it's foot washing. That's what Christianity is. <laughs> Makes me sound, is foot washing Christianity is. That's my Yodaism for the day. He says, that's what it is. That's essential. God's ways are so different from our expectation. And that's why we can all do this. We can be praising him one day. And the very next day, be wondering if he cares or even if he exists because we have expectations that we try to put upon God and he says I'm not that's not how it's done this is how it's done he says for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts and this is what the Holy Spirit does for us the Holy Spirit opens our minds to a new paradigm opens our minds to God's way of doing things, and it's always a step beyond what we have as, as, a, as a human being have in our mind. And sometimes it throws us for a loop, just like it did for James and John, and for the crowds, who are all expecting one thing and got another. I always used to wonder, you know, when I was learning the Bible and I was a young Christian, how could these crowds welcome him and in five short days say, crucify him? How could they turn so suddenly against Jesus? And it hit me. It's because he didn't do what they wanted. How do I turn against Jesus sometimes? In subtle ways maybe, but still the same. When he doesn't do what I want, I get mad. I get frustrated. I get disappointed. They turned on him because he didn't do what they wanted. And so that makes me start to think, if I've been expecting God to do something for me, if you've been expecting God to do something for you, to come through for you in a certain way, and it hasn't happened, it just didn't happen, you may be, you may be right now experiencing disillusionment in your faith, disappointment with God, or, or this confusion, kind of a disconnect of, of God being in my life. Because your thought, your expectation was, this is what God's going to do. He's going to answer my prayers this way. This is how he's going to act. 
Instead, he did it differently, and there was a different outcome, and it wasn't the outcome you wanted. And so now you're getting to the point where you very easily could say, crucify him. Crucify him. Um, I was reading about uh, um, A.N. Wilson. He's a guy. He was a, an academic that was an atheist and uh, wrote some books that were very anti-Christianity and in an incredible way he became a Christian. It happens at times. And, um, and his friends, he, he started losing friends because he'd become a Christian. And his, his friend said, you know, what is, it, what is it about this Jesus? And he says, he contradicts me. You know, I could easily live with a God that's just like me, and it would be, it would be just fine, but there'd be no power in it because I have no power. But he says, I found this God who contradicts me. He, 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 he goes against me. He pushes me in ways that I don't always want to go. And that's the kind of God I need because if I leave it to my own self, I'll go the easy way, the, 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 the fun way. I'll cut corners. I, why not lie if I can get away with it? Why not? He says, that's the way I'll go. But this God pulls me back and says, no. And they said, well, what about other gods? Why don't you check out other gods? And he says, I did check out other gods. And he named some. I'm not going to name them, but he, he named some. And he says, you know what? None of them make me want to say, crucify him. None of them go against me. None of them call me to something different. And so I know you may be here. And you had an expectation of what God was going to do. And he did something different. Or it seems he did nothing at all. And it can drain your joy and drain your trust. And I want to tell you, God understands that. Jesus knows how that feels. Scripture is full of this kind of confusion and disappointment with God. Of not understanding God's plan, understanding what's going on. And this is a perfect example of what's going on in Holy Week. There are questions. There's disillusionment. I like to call Holy Week sometimes with people I've talked to other week because that's what the word holy means. It, means. it means something that's totally other. It's so beyond my ability to comprehend. When it says God is holy, he is totally other, something totally different from me. And so I start thinking, this is other week. This is the week, the last week in Jesus' life. And it's all about people who thought God was going one way and he was going a totally different way. He was going the other way. And the disciples did all kinds of things that expressed their confusion and their disappointment. They ran away. They wept. They feebly fought back. They gave up. They hid themselves. They denied him. They trembled with fear in a room because God was doing something so other. It looked totally like failure. They'd invested three years of their lives in it, and it had just gone. The disappointment, the confusion, and they could not possibly see anything good coming out of the arrest and the trial and the death of Jesus. I mean, think about that from their perspective. What good could come out of that? Our Messiah is dead. Our King is dead. He's gone. There's no hint that they anticipated any thought of a resurrection. And the reason is because 
Let's have a little time. The reason is because for the Jews, resurrection was like a, was like a na- national thing. It happened for everybody at once. It, it would be like if I told you, okay, I'm a, I'm a fan of the Washington Redskins, okay? And I want to tell you something. Next year, the Washington Redskins tight end is going to win the Super Bowl. He is. He's going to win it all by himself. And you'd go, okay, Bob, you're like that kid you were talking about. You really don't have a clue as to what you're talking about because it's a team sport. You have to have a whole team to win the Super Bowl. One person can't win the Super Bowl. This isn't chess. It's a team sport. For the Jews, the resurrection was a team sport in a sense. Everybody gets resurrected all at the same time time. There's no individual resurrections. So when Jesus died, they were like, that's it. Because he didn't fit their expectation of how resurrection happens. So it never occurred to them that he could be resurrected. It's totally against everything they'd ever believed. That's why they could not see anything good possibly coming out of what was happening, what had happened with Jesus. The truth is that what may seem like failure or disconnect from God in your life may simply mean that the story isn't over yet. Your resurrection morning may be just around the bend. God may be doing something so other in your life that you're struggling with recognizing it. In the midst of it, you can't see it. James and John couldn't see it. They wanted the best house, best, they wanted the best um, seats in the house if they were successful Christians. The crowds wanted another. Judas Maccabeus to win a battle for them. They all had their ideas. And our, parent, our, our, our expectations can blind us to Jesus' presence and the other way that he's going. So if we're going to live this week in other week, we need to change expectations in some ways. We need to open our eyes and be willing to see God working in different ways than we're expecting. We have to go through our preconceived notions of how God works and who God uses and maybe stretch out and let God work in ways that we're not ready for or we haven't thought about. One time I I went, uh, I was at a conference and and, um, it's just terrible for pastors. You know, when you go hear another pastor or you go hear a conference, pastors are the most critical, judgmental people and I, guilty as charged. I'm, I'm listening to this speaker and I'm going, Dude, this is so basic. Come on, man. Oh, that illustration's no good. <laughs> I just remember thinking, oh, come on, man. I got eight better than that. You know, you just, and, and just being critical and, and walking out and talking to somebody that I came with, and they looked at me, and they said, that is just what I needed. And I was like, what? That? I get you that on my worst day, man. You know, that's, uh, that's, uh, and, and it hit me because God said, hey, Bob, it's not about you. It's not about you. I know who I'm speaking to, and I'm using someone, and I'm going to use him in a way that's going to profoundly affect people there. You're the only one who's not getting it, dummy. And realizing, wow, okay, God. I see how you work. And it's not the way I think. And so I would encourage you, as we, as we go through, this is Holy Week, this is Other Week, make this week different for yourself. Look for ways. 
Have your eyes open. Ask God. Say, God, if you want me to do something, if there's someone you want, let me see it. Show it to me. Be willing to step out and do something. Be willing to get involved. Maybe, maybe you make a, a commitment to get involved in a ministry, maybe here or maybe others. I mean, we have so many ministries that we're involved in as a church with, with, with CareNet and Thrive, and, 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 and we try to do things for Crew and Young Life and FCA and all these different, you know, maybe it's something like that. I don't know, but it's being willing. Or maybe it's taking the step of revealing a little bit of yourself to someone else and asking someone to pray for you about something you're struggling with, to actually ask for help. But it involves looking for Jesus, looking to see what Jesus is doing in your workplace, in your home, with your family, with friends. Try to look for him and be ready for him. You know, I was thinking, I was imagining what it would have been like to be at the cross. It is so other from what they expected. And you think about it, it's the worst possible thing that could happen. It's not what they wanted. Nothing good, as far as they were, could, could come out of this. No one imagined that Jesus' answer to the cry, Hosanna, save us. His answer to that was going to be an instrument of torture and death. But it would be the beginning of history being remade. And so, when, with each one of us, what's your struggle What's your struggle? What's that thing that's eating at you, that you're worried about, that you struggle with so much? Keep reminding yourself this week, God is working. I want to be on board with that. God, you're working. I trust you. I can't see it right now, but I'm trusting. And live with a sense of expectation. What will God do? And God, help me to see it when you do it and to be a part of it. And maybe, you know, shameless plug, maybe it's something as simple as inviting a friend next week for Easter. You know, maybe it's something as simple as that. And, and, and that Sunday, we're going to talk about the implications of the resurrection and what it can mean for us in our life. And maybe you know someone that needs to hear that. Maybe you know someone that would respond to that. I'd encourage you, take that step. Be willing to do that, to invite a friend, maybe a family member, to Easter. 8.30 service, 10.30, it doesn't matter. It's going to be the same trying to figure out what is God doing and how can I be a part of it. That's what God wants us to struggle with this week during Holy Week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the example of your disciples. We see that it's so many times they were just clueless, just like we are. And they had crazy expectations, just like we do. And they wanted things to happen the way they wanted them to happen, just like we want. And so, Father, help us to get past that, to be willing to see you working in ways uh, that we never expected, to see you use us in ways we never expected. And Lord, most of all, help us to be faithful, just faithfully trying to follow you. And God, we trust you because you're good. In Jesus' name, amen.